Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising Podcast. I am your host, Lisa Hillier, and today I have Jeff Snicer on the show with me. And Jeff is a father of two from Kamloops, BC, here in Canada. And he is an outspoken critic of sustainable development policies. Jeff runs the website Save Canada and is a founding member of the Kamloops Citizens Safety Committee Association. And Jeff and I crossed paths when I attended his seminar, his presentation in Seashelt here on the Sunshine Coast, all around 15-minute cities, smart cities, and there was a wealth of knowledge presented, and I couldn't wait afterwards to have a conversation with him on the podcast to inform people, bring awareness, um, reveal, you know, kind of the, the people that are fighting for our freedom here in Canada and, and other parts of the world is really one of my intentions here with the podcast. And so I love having these conversations to bring awareness to different things to the light and just gain new perspectives. And the more people that are aware the more that we can create change. And I have so much faith and trust that we will create change. And so I'm so excited to dive into this conversation with Jeff. Definitely check out his links that are in the show notes so that you can, yeah, you can learn more. So let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. I am so excited for our conversation. I attended your seminar on smart cities, also known as 15-minute cities, in Seashell probably a month ago, and it was really insightful into the underworkings of these plans that are happening in Canada. So I'm excited to dive in. To start, what has been your journey to driving across Canada in a safe Canada truck presenting these seminars? Okay, so that, that's a that's, that's an interesting question. So, I guess we'd have to add in uh, some backstory uh, first for my life. So, um, up until 2020, I was actually living overseas. I, I left Canada in, I guess you could say around 2008. I left um, officially in 2010, and I, I'd lived overseas as an expat for quite a while. Uh, and uh, I worked in the uh, oil and gas industry. So I've, I've worked all over the world. I've lived in many different interesting places and ended up coming back to Canada during COVID. And I think like a lot of people, I had a lot of questions about what was going on. Um, initially, I was actually completely bought into the whole uh, COVID narrative of uh, everything, really. You know, it was quite frightening. Um but I'm a numbers guy. I'm a details guy. So I was tracking everything on my computer daily, watching all the news, reading all the latest updates. And there was a point sometime in the summer of 2020 when um, I guess the numbers started to diverge from the narrative. Mm. And begrudgingly, uh, even though I was one of the first people sort of ringing the alarm bell about COVID. I was the only person wearing a mask originally. Mm -hmm. I uh, 
I guess I changed my opinion. I had to update things as new data became available. And uh, I started listening to these people who I initially thought were crazy uh, that were saying that, you know, COVID is going to take away all of your, your rights and this and that, because I, I was, I was genuinely scared at the beginning. So, um, you know, I, I reserve the right to change my opinion as new data becomes available and I updated my opinion on things. And uh, then throughout COVID, uh, I experienced some pretty radical financial calamity as, as a result of the policies. So I ended up, I quit my job, took my family back to Canada. And uh, through that, I ended up losing a business and a lot of money. Um, my business ended up getting closed down because of the travel restrictions. So it was uh, very traumatic. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a very tough go for myself and my family. We were, we were up here. And then within a year, we were just scraping the, the bottom of the barrel. So it was a very fast change. And, um, you know, and then I, I ended up being discriminated against in Canada. Um, you know, part of what I did was travel for work and I wasn't able to travel for work anymore. So, um, you know, I know that a lot of people have different opinions on COVID, but for me, it was very real. And the, the consequences of the decisions that I made to maintain my integrity throughout that were um, very substantial. We'll just say that it was a very difficult decision to make and I, I paid a very heavy price. So uh, throughout that, I, I guess I, I started to look at the world uh, differently and I kind of came to the conclusion that these, these policies that are, are, are being pushed out or they all seem to be interlinked, whether it be COVID and sustainable development, there, there seems to be a common thread uh, throughout everything. And that is, uh, basically that we all have to give up our individual rights now for the, the greater collective good. And I, I think that that's a very dangerous idea and it's, it's not defined. And I started to see abuses, um, like for instance, what's happening with the four guys uh, that were arrested in Coots. And, um, you know, I think everybody deserves a fair chance to stand trial. If there's evidence, let it be presented. And, you know, if you're guilty, go to jail. If you're not guilty, you should be free. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of combined all that in, into one thing. And I, I thought that Canada was really in a bad state. And my idea was that I would go to the United States and uh, meet people that were fighting for freedom down there. So I ended up uh, taking my truck down to the U.S. and I got... The, the truck wrapped up and uh, with Save Canada. And I ended up with the website savecanada.com. It's just kind of an amazing URL to have, but it just kind of dropped in my lap. And uh, I drove across 11 states and I ended up meeting with politicians and all sorts of people while I was down there. Um, I'm not a social media guy, uh, so this is all new for me. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's, it's all pretty scary and wild. Um, but yeah, I started in the States and I, I wanted to meet the, the different freedom fighters down there because I think they have the same problem that we do in Canada. And I think the, the way 
to kind of save Canada is, is to save the United States, because if the United States ends up going down the same path that we're trying to get off of, the chances that Canada will is very low. So the only way to save Canada is to save the U.S. Like both these countries have to do it together. Um, so that, that was the idea. And when I went down there, I met a lot of great people, learned a lot. Um, you know, I, I had spent a lot of time working in the U.S. already, so it wasn't new for me. But, um, you know, really interesting people and just an amazing experience. And then when I came back to Canada, I, I started putting together, it was actually while I was in the U S um, I'm just going to rewind it a second and I'll, I'll just drop something else. in. so you asked me the question, how did I end up doing these presentations? So I'm, I'm just going to get to that. So, like I said, at the beginning, I'm a details guy. I like to read the fine print. I'm, one of maybe the only people in the world that finds that exciting Mm -hmm. and it's a it's an interesting skill to have like it's like searching for needles and haystacks i I like solving puzzles so i you know i find it rewarding and what really bothered me is that i I noticed a lot of people were talking about this 15-minute city idea and they were talking about some conspiracy to take over the world and i said okay just like with COVID, I, I said, okay, like I'm willing to listen, you know, if, if there's something going on, let's, let's hear it. And nobody could show me anything. So I, out of frustration, I started to do my own research and um, rather than pile everything somewhere on my computer, I just put it into a PowerPoint presentation. It was more just of an ease of um, to store things and, and kind of put it together in a logical fashion. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I had this presentation done and then I did the presentation for some people and ended up meeting with some other people. And, uh, I think the first presentation I did with Adrian, uh, with a group called, uh, coap.ca they're out on the Island there in the Cowichan Valley. And it kind of went viral from there. I did a presentation for action for Canada. Um, a lot of people saw that one. And what I tried to do is really just provide the actual information. Of, mm. of what's going on. And I, you know, I, I have an opinion about what's happening, but I also try and show, try and balance it. And I, I yeah. think it doesn't do anyone any good to just focus on one side. So I spent a lot of time reading about these smart cities, reading about urban development and learning about that. So I try and balance everything out. And then through that, that's how I ended up doing the the presentations. I got involved with some other groups that were interested in this information and tried to help them. Uh, mm-hmm. I got involved in my my own city here in Kamloops, um, learning about the the sustainability plans, and then I ended up putting together the presentation. And uh, there was a call for help to come down to Seashelt. So I don't I don't get any money or do anything for that. Um, so I said, sure, I'll just come on down there and do that because I believe it's important information. So that's the yeah. very long winded answer <laughs> to get to how I ended up driving in a truck around Canada talking about sustainability. That says save Canada. Yes. Um, beautiful. I love the long winded answers because there's so many nuggets in that. And what it sounds like is COVID brought you into some depths of darkness and now it's alchemizing into something for the greater good spreading the message maybe your message but also the facts around smart cities 
Can you just touch on what's happening in Coots? I don't know anything about that. And so are people being arrested or? Well, what happened was, I mean, you could do an entire podcast on this subject alone. Okay. So I'll, I'll try very quickly to kind of summarize. So um, during the, the trucker protest, when everyone in, was in Ottawa, there were actual there were other protests happening in Canada at border crossing. So one of them was Coots, Alberta. There was another one at the Detroit crossing. I think it's the ambassador bridge. And then there was one in Manitoba and the one in Coots, um, they had shut down the border. I think it was for a week or two and the RCMP was there. And then there was kind of this increasing ratchet of tensions. And this was before they declared the uh, emergency act. Right. And what happened was they ended up arresting four men in Coots with the claim that they had weapons and they were planning on murdering RCMP officers. And yeah, that was that. used as the justification. They linked that to some memes. Uh, it's the Jeremy McKenzie Diagonal meme, which I, I think is quite funny. Uh, they linked that to these men and said that it's a, a countrywide conspiracy of right-wing crazy radicals. And that was why they had to declare the public order emergency. Um, and that's kind of history from there. So these four men have been held in jail with no bail and no trial. Uh, it's been well over 600 days. I think it's 630 days now. And meanwhile, you have people that are rapists, murderers, drug dealers, they go to jail, they make bail, they get out the next day. So yeah. these, these four men have actually been held. They're not even in jail. They're in remand, which is the place. It's like the purgatory that you go to. And the time that you spend in remand is actually counted as double time because it's such a bad place to be. And they've been there for over 600 days. So it's almost two years and they haven't had their trial yet. And then on top of this, there's apparently been some prosecutorial prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, the Crown prosecutor was removed. Uh, apparently they submitted some information and um, they may have implicated themselves. It, it, that's speculation, it's hard to say. Um, but anyways, if, if it turns out that these men are innocent, uh, even when they did the public order uh, emergency, the POEC, when they had that inquiry, they were still using this as the justification. So it turns out if these men are actually innocent and it was done on trumped up charges, it, it kind of brings down the whole house of cards. So it is a very interesting case. And, uh, you know, and, and I think it's just an affront to, to people's freedom and liberty that like in Canada, you're being held with without a chance to stand trial and I, I think that's terrible that's not the country that i want to live in yeah. and that's why it's featured prominently on the on the website save canada you can see uh, about the guys and read more about them there okay and so have they gotten a trial date or they still don't have a trial date i believe uh in november there's going to be some sort of trial and then they're looking at moving the trial into 2024 um, but wow. there is talk that one of the fellows now could be up for bail after wow. 600 days. And then some of the guys even have health issues too. So, and they've, they've got families, kids, um, you know, it's just, just unreal that this could happen in Canada. And, uh, you know, the, the charges do sound quite serious, 
but when you look at the information around the case, like the guys were arrested while they were live streaming, talking with the police, not yeah, typically yeah. what you would do if you were guilty and you were, you know, had some mastermind conspiracy to murder police. So it, it's a very strange thing. And, you know, I, of course, I don't have the details, all of it, but I, I just think, you know, on its face, it's wrong. It's a miscarriage of justice. You should be able to stand trial. If there's evidence, great. Show us the evidence. Yeah. You should be able to stand in front of a judge and a jury of your peers. Yeah. With the truckers convoy, I have to say, as somebody that just made a choice that there was a lot of sacrifices with, like you spoke to, um, and I, I was in that boat as well, not same experience, but where our rights were taken away because of personal choices, that truckers convoy was like the biggest glimpse of hope. Like I was, I've never been more proud to be Canadian than that. And then it just flipped and it showed the true colors of the government of Canada in a really horrifying way. Mm -hmm. But I just have to say like what the truckers did um, and the, the people in coots and everything was so like, it just gives me chills. It was such a put Canada like, yay Canada kind of feeling out there for sure. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I can identify that with that. I, I, I remember feeling very, very low, like mm -hmm. in a deep, dark hole, just wondering, you know, what, what is coming next? If it's gone this far, how, how, how are things going to end up? Like, this is just wild, you know? And, you know, that convoy happened. Yeah. It was, it was a huge uh, glimmer of hope and it, it really, you know, Canadians rallied around it. Of course, now it's, it's, um, it's become something else. It's almost the butt of a joke for a lot of people, which I think is sad. And, yeah. uh, you know, I drive around in this truck that says save Canada, God, keep our land glorious and free. Uh, your rights, your rights come from God. The government can't take them. And, uh, people's minds, like they, they either agree they're indifferent or their minds melt when they see the truck. You, you can just see the like, people's face gets twisted up. They just go, and they, <laughs> they can't hold back the reaction. I got like old, old people in parking lots staring at me and just, you know, I, I don't understand why it's such a divisive thing. Um, mm. And it's sad that that's the state of the country, but yeah, that, that's why I, I did it. Um, I don't know that I've made a big difference or any difference at all, but uh, I had to do something and I just felt like that's something that I was going to try and put me here doing this now. So there must be a reason yeah. for everything. And I think God has a plan for us all. Yeah. Yeah. Can you dissect what is a 15 minute city and also sustainable development? What is sustainable development? What is a 15 minute city? So this, this is where, it gets a little bit uh, complicated and I think that people aren't doing a very good job talking about the issues. So I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, which is I don't actually have a problem with the idea of a 15 minute city. Okay. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean the, the urban design concept that was originally conceived, which talks about having, everything within a 15 minute walk or bike ride that seems like a great place to live mm -hmm. okay 
I have problems with specific policies that are tied into that, um, that urban design concept and where those policies would lead us. And, and one of those is the removal of the ownership of transport, the re- complete removal of the private automobile. I have an issue with that because I see that the private automobile, uh, just like with the trucker convoy, uh, with the farmers who are protesting in the Netherlands, you've seen it in India, like people, when they get together in vehicles, they are very powerful and hard to control. And if you remove that from people, then it's, you essentially lose that freedom. Now there's an entire argument on the other side of this, that everything in North America has been designed around the automobile. And we have these, um, nonsensical requirements for parking. That's why we end up with these huge malls and all these concrete islands where with all this ugly parking and that that's real thing. You know, Mm -hmm. those are real things. We don't have to design everything around the automobile. Um, And I'm actually like somewhat sympathetic to a lot of these ideas, but I recognize that going way too far in one direction is bad for freedom. And when you tie that in with other ideas like monitoring and data collection, then you start to have this concentration of power in one place, which could potentially be abused. And that's, that's the issue I take with it. So the actual urban design concept of having a hospital, a grocery store, my work and my house all within 15 minutes, love it. I would love to live there. In fact, it was one of the things that uh, when I came back to Canada, after living overseas, uh, specifically in Asia, is that a lot of the buildings, the apartment buildings would have uh, the bottom floor as commercial. So they would have some offices or a convenience store. I thought, why don't we have this here in Canada? It makes so much sense. And that's because of the zoning rules and the way that the cities were developed. So I actually have no problem with that. And I actually think most people wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, So, Again, like defining the issue is very difficult because there's been so much um, talk about 15 minute cities and it seems to be a catch all phrase. Can Um, I just ask a question with, you know, um, so I'm in the middle of purchasing property. Hopefully it goes through its five acres on the coast here. What happens in this scenario with 15 minute cities to people that live out in the country on land that are farmers that are producing food. What, what happens with the 15 minute cities to them or anything? So again, so that's, that's a, like, it's all kind of related to sustainable development. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about 15 minute cities, and that's why I really try to get away from that whole concept of defining everything as a 15 minute city. Because like I said, the actual definition of the 15 minute city, I don't have issues with that. It's when you attach all these ideas to it. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, one, I think what you're talking about is the push and there is a concerted identifiable push to remove people from the land and take small parcels of land, consolidate them into larger parcels of land, and then Uh, make it more difficult to farm, make it more expensive to farm, make fertilizer harder to get, make it more onerous on farmers with more regulations about animals and tracking animals uh, to the point where people aren't farming and developing the land anymore. 
And the reason that they're doing is that is because they want to sustain and conserve the land. And that's part of sustainable development. Um, there's, there's something called the, the wildlands project, you know, which I don't, I don't talk about specifically, but it basically summarized, they want to move people into three different sections. There's the wildlands and then there's kind of a buffer zone and then there's urban and they want to take everybody out of the wildlands, maybe move them into this buffer zone, but concentrate everything into the, the urban areas and that everything else will just be conserved and it'll be there for the, for the good of mankind. But really it's just that the government will control it and limit access. Um, so to your question, what does it mean for people uh, living out in, in the suburbs or out in rural areas? Um, I don't think the 15 minute city like the actual definition of it applies, but as part of sustainable development, they are trying to limit the development of the land out there. So there's going to be a reduction in services. There's going to be a reduction in road service levels, electricity, utility tie-ins, all those things are going to stop providing um, over time to incentivize people to move from the land into the urban centers because according to sustainable development that's the only way that we can save the earth right does that answer your question it does yeah and what it brings forward is more government control on the foods that we're eating um where we can't grow our own food we can't um sustain ourselves everything is coming through the lens of the government. So there's, there's kind of been this movement to grassroots, right? Like growing your own stuff, knowing where it came from, knowing the hands that are actually touching what you've eaten, the meat that you're consuming, all of it. And so this just feels like more eliminating that and bringing in, you will eat this food that's like in the grocery stores kind of thing. So it's really interesting if, if you read through sustainable development, they talk about uh, food security mm-hmm. and uh, they use another term resiliency. And to me, these are, these are just, it's a euphemism for the same thing, which is consolidating everything, regulating everything, managing everything by the government. And they talk about food security. If they were worried about food security, then they would, you know, reduce taxes on farmers, they would reduce the red tape on farmers, and they would just allow as many small mini farms in your local area to happen. But what's actually happening is, in a way is kind of the opposite. So in British Columbia, you have the, the ALC, which is the Agricultural Land Commission, and they're in charge of the ALR, which is the Agricultural Land Reserve. And on the ALR land, you're not allowed to develop it so that it's conserved for farming. But what happens is families that have farmed on this land for, you know, a hundred years, they want to pass it down to their children. Well, their children need to build a home so that they can have their family there. Like, unless you kick mom and dad out, you have to build a carriage home and things like that. And the development on those properties is being limited. So it makes it very difficult to have anyone else live on the farm and help with the farm. So it reduces the ability of the family to, to maintain the land all the while reducing the value of that land. And then 
they come up with all the regulations about fertilizer and emissions and water. And then you have the RSOs out there doing what they're doing. And if you look at that holistically, what it's really doing, that's a, a word that they like to use is the holistic effect of things. And holistically, what's happening is it's actually making farming much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's not increasing food security. It's actually reducing food security and it's causing farms to close. Um, like I talked about this in my presentation in the TNRD, they actually reported that uh, uh, irrigated land is down 20% since 2016. So if, if we're supporting farmers on agricultural land, why is irrigated land down 20%? It, it doesn't make sense. So the opposite is actually happening from what the intended policies are. Mm. For you, what's the overarching reason for all of this, for eliminating farmers, for COVID, for 15-minute cities, for all of it? So I, I want to I stay within, you know, I have, I have opinions on things, um, pattern recognition, you can look at something and, and stop listening to what people say. Uh, you know, if somebody tells you this is for food security, we're, we're tracking all your animals and they must be identified and have a tracking number so that we can keep the animals safe. Um, and then the government ends up coming and taking all the animals away. Um, so what's being said and what's actually happening are two different things. So, you know, there, there's an old saying that you should judge a tree by its fruit. And I'm looking at all these policies and I'm judging the tree by its fruit. The policies are not good. They're not good for society. They're not good for the economy. They're not good for farmers. So is there a, a concerted effort and a plan to take all of these things away from us? Um, you know, then I have to apply motive to this, which is difficult because I'm not in the back room with these powerful people that make these decisions and write these plans, but I do have two eyes and I am here on the ground and I can look around and I can judge by the fruit that's being born uh, from these policies that it is bad. So I, I tend not to, to spend too much time worrying about who is doing it and, and why. Um, and I'll just look at the result. And I, I can say with 100% certainty, like as a factual uh, talking point, is that this is coming from the United Nations under the guise of sustainable development. And the result will be less land ownership, less resiliency, more concentration of power, less privacy, less rights you know, less freedom for everyone. Those will be the results. And that is a fact and it's inarguable. So that's, that's what I stick to. And I try not to worry because at the end of the day, uh, you know, you you can go on the internet and you can read, you can, uh, there's a million different conspiracy theories about who's doing what and why, you know, maybe there's, there's lizard people or aliens, or it's the Royal family or the Rothschilds. None of that matters because at the end of the day, it doesn't change what you should be doing, which is getting up and every single day taking back control of your local government because none of these policies can be implemented unless the local government is on board with them. 
And unfortunately, the local government is on board with them. So there's a lot of work to do to get the local government to see the problem and bring them back to representing the people. Yeah. Okay. So what are your issues, problems that you see with the 15-minute cities? Can you point out those and how we get them to our government, how we infiltrate into the government to stop these initiatives? Well, I, I, I start from the, the position that I, I don't believe the people that are in my local government are there uh, to do me harm. I think everybody acts based on they have motives, they have incentives to do things, they have a job. And if you don't understand what their job is, first of all, um, you can't go in there and tell them what they're doing. You should probably first learn what it is that they think they're doing. And because you, you might actually learn something. And, and I find this is a big problem with the whole freedom movement in general is a lot of people are saying, you guys are doing this. And, you know, and at, at some point, and I can see it clearly um, with COVID a lot of things were ignored clearly. Um, it That becomes less clear when you look at this, I'll just use the word, the 15 minute city idea in the cities um, because it, it's not it's not so clear what the issue is. And, and this is why I, I, I really wanna get people to focus on what the definitions are. So I don't have a problem with the 15 minute city. I have a problem with not owning a vehicle. I have a problem with being tracked and traced everywhere that I go. Uh, you know, I, I have a problem with uh, movement as a service, conglomerating all the types of mobility into one central database that the government has control over so that they can just turn off all transport. Uh, there's no barriers for them to do it. Um, so those are the things that I have a problem with. And I, I think to clearly communicate that to the city, you have to just stick to those issues and not combine it with everything else. Because what I see happening is that the freedom movement's not particularly effective at communicating. And mm -hmm. e even for myself, like I, I have all sorts of opinions. I won't share them all here, but you know, in private, we can, we can talk about anything. And I would, I will go and I'll sit and I'll talk to someone who was excited for the trucker convoy and I'll ask them about something and they just, unload everything on me conspiracies justin trudeau vaccines 15 minute city like everything just comes out in just one giant barrage and that's not effective like e even for myself i can't talk to that person so imagine if you don't agree with any of that how your communication is coming off so uh, i think i, I might have lost the question you asked me but i, I think you asked me how no, I, I wanted to just add to that. There's a lot of emotion attached yeah. to the freedom fighters. And I have that as mm -hmm. well, you know, and especially during the mandates and stuff, there was so much emotion. And I think that's where the communication doesn't come across effectively. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it it's a big issue. And the, I want to say the other side there's, there's so many different sides, but we'll just say, just to make it simple, the other side is well-organized in a way, and the media is on their side and the government's on their mm -hmm. side. It's the, it's the consensus opinion and it's supported from every angle. 
And if you're trying to come against that and you can't define your message and show clearly what it is that you think the problems are, then you, you're not going to be effective. So the question I think you asked me was, what are the problems with the 15-minute cities? Yeah. I just yes. wanted to bring forward one of my problems with it, and I don't know if this is actually a problem with it, so I want you to clarify. But you, nature, like can you go out into nature? Or is, yeah, is it like... A- See, so th- this, this is where, you know, I might lose some people and uh, I, might, I might diverge from the, the kind of the conspiracy side narrative. So I, I'm a big guy, like I actually take heat a lot from people in the freedom community because I call bullshit all the time. I, I see people, they're posting, and I'm like, okay. Like this is just clearly not true. Like if you just looked at it for 30 seconds, you would know that that's not true. And people get really upset with me, but I do the same thing to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying like I'm the sole purveyor of truth, but I do tend to look at the details of things. And I notice a lot of stuff just flat out isn't true. So that's not to say that everything isn't true. But when when you talk about this idea that you're not going to be able to go out in nature and things like that, I I don't I don't know where exactly that plan is. I know there's the Wildlands Project and there have been some policy papers about that, but it's not written in black and white, and it's certainly not written into anything in your municipality. Mm. So taking that idea, which it may very well be what the end goal is for all of this but if it's not written in black and white and you can't say hey guys look at this you're you're just talking about an idea right and i guess i wouldn't have a car to go to the beach though would i yeah so like that's and that's a genuine thing is there going to be cars in the future no there's going to be much less vehicles and much less vehicle ownership and your vehicle use is going to be restricted and way more expensive that is guaranteed Okay. okay, that's something black and white that people can identify with. Then you can go on to the second order effects of that. How's that going to affect your life? How's it going to affect the economy? Are you going to be able to see your family? Are you going to be able to take your kids on vacation? You know, those are things that people can identify with. But like going off into the realm of is this really happening? I don't I don't know that it's effective because there's so much in black and white to talk about already. Why would you discredit yourself and spend time worrying about conspiracy stuff when it's all right here? And that's, that's the approach that I've taken. And like the response I've gotten back, uh, you could even, even see it in Seashell. Um, because, you know, I, I, I have nuanced opinions. Not everything is black and white. There's good things and there's bad and there's the in-between and even in Seashelt, I remember there was somebody in the, the audience commented about uh, what do you think about CO2 and how all of this climate change is not really happening. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm 42 years old. I've been on this planet for a while. Uh, when I was a child, the snow was piled up four feet high on the side of the house and I used to dig tunnels through it. And by the time I was a teenager, there was no snow in the wintertime anymore the climate has changed Mm -hmm. and half the audience went, but you know, what I'm saying is factually true, but the the problem is that they're associating it to a political position or an ideology. And I'm just talking about what's actually happening in real life and the climate has changed. 
whether or not it's all from anthropogenic climate change from CO2, that's the debate. But the climate is changing. The climate has always changed on Earth. Like that, that, that's a fact. So why can't I say that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Hello, loves. Just interrupting the show for one quick moment to let you all know about a product that I absolutely love and that I am an affiliate for. As you all know, I have been going through quite the healing journey these past six or so months, and insomnia was part of that. And my go-to for insomnia is pearl powder, and it is also amazing. It's been used in Chinese medicine for thousands and thousands of years for our skin and bones. It's full of minerals and it is so nourishing. So, so nourishing. And so my favorite company to purchase my pearl powder, my pearl of the sea is from Wild Holistic. I love their small batch, cozy, comfy business style. And it is absolutely a pleasure to purchase their products. And my go-tos are the earth drops full of vulvic acid and humic acid and pearl of the sea and the healing body, which is turmeric, ginger, and holy basil full of anti-inflammatory goodness. And so there is a link for Wild Holistic in the show notes. And if you use discount code LISA, capital L, capital I, capital S, capital A, all capitals, use discount code LISA, you will receive a 10% discount on checkout. And I am an affiliate of the company because I use their product and I fully stand by it. And so by purchasing through my link, you are supporting the podcast. Part of the proceeds go to me and I am so, 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 so grateful. So yeah, back to the show. Yeah. I mean, climate change, when you dissect the words, it's a very broad term. And just like you said, the climate is changing, but it's so linked to this idea that all of this is happening in the name of climate change, that mm. we're creating this and we're going to fix this by moving into these 50 minute cities. Can you speak to that? Cause I know you spoke about it quite a bit at the presentation about Will these 15-minute cities actually be effective in reversing climate change? So sustainable development isn't going to stop climate change. Um, and then I'm, I'm just going to get away from the 15-minute city and just focus on sustainable development. So initially, sustainable development started off uh, with the idea that we have to do things in a nice way to protect the environment so that we don't use up all our natural resources and there's going to be something there for the people in the future. Uh, because if you use up everything and then, you know, we'll just hit a brick wall and then society will crumble, which, which makes sense, but it's, it's obviously morphed into something else. Now sustainable development is uh, managed social values, managed environment, managed economy. And it's like, they're, they're telling you clear. It's not a conspiracy. You can just read it right there. Like that's what they're telling you is happening. And the, sorry, what was the question again? I, I lost myself there. You said. It's okay. Um, will these 15 minute cities or develop, oh, stop, or will, they, will, they stop will it change? actually stop climate change? 
So no, it, it's not. And especially in the context of Canada. So it's brought up often that as Canadians per capita, we use a lot of CO2 per capita, which is true, but we also have this massive land mass and, you know, there's people that drive 80 kilometers a day to get to work uh, and, and things like that. So that's not going to go away. That requirement for travel is always going to be there unless you remove that job or that requirement. And that's the only way that we can meet those goals. So it's going to be a terrible effect on the economy, but it's not going to stop climate change because Canada's, even though per capita, our per capita contri contribution of CO2 is very high. And, and then this is just, I'm just assuming that I'm just going to go with what the government says that CO2 is causing global warming, even in their own terms. It doesn't make sense because if we follow all these agreements and sustainable development and get rid of all the CO2, our effect on the world is going to be negligible. And right now, China is responsible for 30% of the emissions in the world, and they're building a new coal-fired power plant every two weeks. Or I think they're building two per week was the article I just read. So they have 1.4 billion people that are developing and coming up out of poverty, and they are hungry for energy. They are going to create more carbon than all of us combined. Mm. And it's ridiculous to think that if we just cut... Like if we make these massive, massive sacrifices in our lives to cut the CO2 and then the debate whether or not CO2 is actually causing the global warming and we'll have that effect, that's just leave that out because according to the government, it is. So we've accepted that just for the sake of the argument. Even if we cut everything, it's not going to stop it because China just keeps making more and more carbon. So mm -hmm. even within their own framework, using their own plans, assuming all the same assumptions that CO2 is causing this and we have to cut it, da, 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 it's still not going to stop global warming. And uh, in Seashelt, again, there was the two people that stood up and, and they, they questioned it and they said, well, what about the forest fires and the floods? And, and I, you know, my response was, so you, you think that cutting carbon in Canada is going to stop a flood or a forest fire? Like it, it's not. Again, like I recognize that the climate has changed, weather patterns are changing, temperatures are changing, but cutting CO2 in Canada is not going to stop it. And it always comes back to this, what I think is an illogical argument, because no one else is doing it, it's just Canada. And, uh, you know, it, it's like this emotional collectivist argument, you have to give up your individual rights to save the world. Yeah. And every time we give up our individual rights, we end up with more government control, less ownership of property, less ownership of travel um, and government control and tracking of everything you do. And, and that's the result of all these policies. So if we took that out of the policies, if we could sustainably develop the way that they want to in a way that wasn't destructive for the economy and allowed you to maintain your your freedom and property ownership, then that would, I, I think I would be okay with that. I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. Um, but the problem is that these policies all go to the same place and they are not going to stop climate change at all. It, it's absolute mm. nonsense. And these 50 minute cities, they're happening in the UK as well. Is that correct? And also are they starting to happen in the States or no? Yeah, so the the same the same development idea of smart growth 
which mm-hmm. is what I talk about in, in smart growth. Uh, to summarize, they, they set a, a boundary and all the development has to happen within that boundary. So none of the rural or agricultural lands can be further developed because that's bad. And every, we're just going to build up and stop building out. Um, so that is all across the U.S. That concept is being taught to, to planners in school and they're implementing it in their, in their lives. Uh, when I was in the States, I saw uh, Dallas, Texas was their employees had submitted a report to have Dallas, Texas join the C40 cities. Austin, Texas is a C40 city. I think Houston is a C40 city. You know, this is Texas. This is like redneck guns, cows, beef, Texas. And they are going full steam with all these sustainable development policies. And you can see it uh, with what they did with all the, it's amazing when you drive through Texas now, they have all the windmills everywhere. Um, And it happened a couple of years ago, they had that freak snowstorm, you know, supposed to be warming, but they're getting snowstorms and all the, uh, the windmills iced up. And they ended up losing power. So, you know, the the idea that sustainable development is going to make us more resilient is obviously not true. It's going to put everything in a single uh, batch of power, which is electricity, and it's hard to get and it's difficult to create using these policies. And yes, absolutely, 100%. It's happening in the States. I saw it in Idaho. Salt Lake City is really bad. Uh, Utah, they're going full bore. Um, Denver, 100%. Uh, I think even their governor said that uh, Denver is going to be the first smart state. I think he said mm-hmm. that recently in an interview. Um, you know, and even in the the little cities around Colorado, you, the the governor of Colorado, pardon me, in, in Colorado, you notice that they have all of this technology and smart city infrastructure being put up, and they are running the same plans, and the same stupid bike lanes are everywhere. And they're pushing everyone into active transport and no one can imagine not having a car yet. They're building everything around them. And the law says that cars will be illegal in the future. So what do people think is happening? That's, you know, and, and, yeah, it's, it's hundred electric- percent happening in the, in the U S. Okay. Will electric cars be illegal as well? So this, this is where I want to be, be careful now. What I say when I do the presentation is that they're banning all cars mm-hmm. and they are, they're making, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles illegal. So in British Columbia, we have the zero EV act by 2040, hundred percent of light duty zero, uh, uh, vehicles must be zero emission. The government has a target of 90% by 2030. And they also have it in their back pocket that they're going to make it medium duty and heavy duty vehicles as well, just like California. So they're, they're preparing to ban those cars, but then if you read their plans further, and this is what I talked about in the presentation, it's not possible. It's just not physically or technically possible or feasible to convert all of the existing vehicle stock to electric vehicles. Cause there's, there's not enough batteries. There's not enough cars. There's not enough electricity. All three of those things are real, real life problems that you can't solve right now. So that means that the, the future will be less cars driving less kilometers. And that's exactly what the government is planning there. They want everybody to move over to active transportation, which is a nice sounding euphemism for not having a car. If, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. 
when they say that they want 30% of trips by 2030 to be active transportation, what they're saying is they want 30% of people who own vehicles to not own a vehicle. And that includes EVs. Okay. So that, that's, that's the distinction I make. So they're not making EVs illegal, but they're going to make owning them uh, onerous and difficult. And in, in the future, right now, EVs are affordable because they're subsidized by the government. They don't have to pay road tax or anything. Electricity is cheap. But as the grid becomes strained, uh, they're going to come out with something called demand side management, which is basically just an increase in price. So people will use less. So it's just not technically or physically possible to convert all the vehicles over to electric vehicles for numerous different reasons. There's no new sources of electricity coming uh, unless there's some massive technical breakthrough um, where free energy just appears, which would be great, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's not happening. So the only way that we're going to do this is by moving everyone from owning a vehicle, whether it's electric or whether it's a gasoline powered vehicle and converting them to active transport. Cause that's the only way, like you, you've got one goalpost, which is uh, cars that make emissions are illegal. The other goalpost is there's only so much electricity. So yeah. you've set the bounds. You must have a solution within here. The solution that everybody gets to drive a car still an electric one that's outside that's not happening and the government knows that and they're they're planning for that can you speak to the no meat agenda as well that there will be no meat so if if you look at uh you know with within the lens of climate change that co2 is the enemy and this this will become really clear when i explain this in in this way um about 50% of CO2 emissions come from consumption. So that's consuming products, consuming meat, dairy, um, textiles. And this is when you see that, that stuff from the C40 cities where they talk about limiting the amount of shirts you're going to buy per year, uh, reducing meat consumption to zero, reducing in car ownership. Okay. So you've got that consumption on one side, that's about 50% of global emissions. And then over here you have transportation and housing, which are the two main sources of sustainable development climate plans, which we are cutting right now. So that's getting away from vehicle ownership and retrofitting houses. So if they're willing to completely remake our entire society and economy to cut the carbon from these things, and then not cut the carbon from your consumption, that doesn't make any sense. So the the key word there is called consumption interventions or consumption-based greenhouse gas inventory. And right now, for instance, in Kamloops, there's no evidence that Kamloops is doing this, but there is evidence that other cities in BC are doing it. And I was just in Saanich and Victoria there, I did another presentation In Saanich, they've already done a consumption-based inventory that shows exactly how much meat and dairy are contributing to CO2 emissions. And they talk about how that's the next target. And they also talk about how textiles are creating CO2 emissions. So that's how many pieces of clothing you get to wear. And the only reason you would conduct that inventory 
and understand the number is if you had a plan to reduce, increase or control that number. So you've got 1 billion people in the world under the C40 cities and 36% of global GDP saying that they want to limit consumption. And then you have cities in British Columbia also doing consumption-based greenhouse gas inventories and Victoria has also done one. Naturally, you can make the conclusion that they're preparing to roll out consumption-based interventions is what they call them. And they're going to try and reduce what people consume. And you can see this in a uh, roundabout way. For instance, in Kamloops, British Columbia, where I'm from, we recently uh, moved from two bins. We had recycling and garbage, and now we have recycling, garbage, and organics. And the organics are being shipped by a truck 250 kilometers away to Princeton, where they're, they're properly disposed of and turned into fertilizer, supposedly. So what they also did when they brought out the third bin for organics is that they changed the recycling and the garbage bins that were collected every week. They changed it to once every two weeks. So the only way to reduce consumption is, or reduce the emissions from consumption is to reduce consumption. Mm. They talk about this circular economy and they have a goal of 90% reduction in stuff going to the landfill. And basically what that means is that 90% of things after recycling and organics recycling must be reduced. You can compact that garbage, you can try and reuse it, but really what it means is it's, it's a consumption control. So that's like a, that would be an example of a, an intervention that's changing your behavior because people are getting pissed off. They don't have enough room in their garbage cans now, especially if you have a big family other people are saying, oh, it's fine. We're fine. It doesn't affect us. But people with big families and that consume a lot have a lot of garbage and they're having mm-hmm. issues. So that that would be the the consumption based, uh, how, how it's developing here in Kamloops. It's, it's all coming from the same ideas, which is coming from sustainable development. Mm. Are there any initiatives for air travel to be reduced or war to be reduced? Kind of the things that do have a huge toll with CO2? I, I, I understand um, that they, they want to reduce. They say that because air travel is creates a lot of CO2 to lift an airplane into the sky and fly it is actually really inefficient. So they're, they're moving right now in British Columbia and, and a lot of places are trying to move into um, sustainable fuels. So they're going to create less CO2 or they're going to come from renewable sources like biofuels. And um, the result of that is going to be less, less energy density in the fuel, uh, probably close to the same emissions and less reliability um, because nothing's better than petrol refined petroleum products. Um, So it's, the, the other side of that is to electrify airplanes. And then I, I've heard in Europe that they've actually removed regional flights. Like in France, they wanted to re- remove regional flights because of the CO2. No and they way. just got rid of regional flights. And now people have to take the train or they don't travel. So like the idea of, say, flying from Seychelles to Vancouver, they might just get rid of that regional flight. It, it may not happen anymore or Victoria to Edmonton or something like that. That's a, a small regional flight will be eliminated and they'll say, well, you, you either take the train or you drive a car, but there will be no train. There will be no car. Wow. That's, that's where the problem is. 
Yeah. So I think in the beginning of the conversation, you spoke about saving the states and that being our hope that if we save the states, we can save Canada. Yeah. How do we save the states? Well, the, the, the United States is such a big and beautiful and interesting place. And every state is different. The culture is so much different than Canada. It really is. And even from state to state, it, it's so much different. In, in my mind, when I think about the U.S. initially, I think, well, they are, are very libertarian minded. They protect their rights, you know, their right to bear arms. And they've, they've gone through a revolution already. So it's, it's a completely different culture than Canada. But at the same time, because they have those rights, everybody assumes that they're there. And there aren't many people, even, even though they're aware of how important they are, they aren't necessarily fighting to keep them. So part, part of the things, one of, one of the things I'll say that I, I, I realized when I went to the States is that I think Canada is further along on the freedom fighting scale because we've had more taken from us and people said, Hey, this is not okay. We need to organize and do something. So in the United States, there's, there's lots of different groups and lots of local groups. And in some States, they even have militias and things like that. But um, in terms of an organized freedom fight, like uh, just to put it into perspective, the word freedom fighter doesn't make any sense in the United mm. States. I said, oh, I'm a freedom fighter. Like, what, what's that? They don't even know what that means because it, it, there's no context for it in the United States. So they're not I, aware I, of their freedoms being taken away. Like we have been. Well, th- this is what I mean. Like they, in, in the United States, it's a different culture. They are very freedom oriented mm-hmm. and they love their freedoms but at the same time, they have their freedoms and they haven't been taken away. So yeah. they look at what's happening in Canada and they say, oh, that's terrible. Doesn't yeah. doesn't affect us. 15-minute city, no problem. I'll just shoot it. You know, like these are, these are some of the comments I got. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to save the U.S., but I know that there, there are people, there are some groups there that see the same sort of threat. And even some of the people that were talking about sustainable development, like the, the original people, the OGs will say like, um, uh, what's her name? Mary, Marie Corey, Mary Corey. I always forget her name. She did the, uh, a book called the green mask. Mm-hmm. It's all about agenda 21 and how they're the wildlands project and how they're going to take over the land through the United nations. And she's been fighting and, she, and she's passed away now, rest in peace. But she's, she was fighting against it for 20 years. Mm. So like the, the original people, you know, and you, you've got your Alex Jones and the, the more fringy type people down there. But um, I, I don't know how to save the U.S. I, I honestly don't. I went down <laughs> there for inspiration and I, and I was inspired. So I, I, brought, I brought my inspiration back to Canada and I turned it into action. But nice. I, I, can't, I can't save the U.S. The U.S. has to save themselves. But what I what I hope to do and, and is to continue the connections that I made with people down there. And uh, because I, I think we have to share information across the border, like if something's happening in Canada, then it's probably going to affect the U.S. and vice versa. So we have to keep that yeah. going. 
Yeah. 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 I know there are quite a few freedom fighters in the U.S. that I know as but friends. But they're not, not freedom fighters. They're they're okay. just patriots. They're, they're not patri- freedom okay. fighters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, does anything come up for you? This is just a, a question that I was asked by a, a friend that knew I was going to have this conversation with you. Um, with the energy efficiency of homes, so they're starting to wipe out wood stoves, um, incandescent light bulbs, I believe, all these different things to bring your home up to a greater efficiency level. Right, right. And they're going to give incentives for people to refurbish their homes right? in the way of a loan from the government to do this. And so what we've heard is that that loan will have, I don't know how to word this correctly, will stand above the mortgage. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can talk about that okay. a little bit. So uh, a little bit of the background. Um, I believe it's in, there's uh, something called the Pan-Canadian Framework, which is put out by the federal government. And in there, they made a promise by 2022 that there would be a retrofit code for all of Canada. And it, it would be a guide that the provinces would voluntarily follow to retrofit all the homes. And in there, you can read the policy documents. They say it must be, it must be voluntarily. We cannot force people to retrofit their homes. But of course, the government has many, many levers uh, and incentives and disincentives to to nudge and cajole and control you into doing what they want. Um, so what they've done is they've come up with a list of triggers that will trigger this retrofit on your home. And there's even there's a whole chart that goes along with it. Um I actually think I have it here. I can just read it out real quick. So in under the, the, the triggers. Oh yeah, here we go. So they, they'll say, is it, is it maintenance or repair? So if it's just general maintenance on your home, that's fine. It's not going to trigger anything, but if say you are doing a space addition, if you're replacing your furnace or if your furnace, if you're replacing any kind of system in your house, uh, if you're doing anything that probably requires you to pull a permit through your local building authority, um, this will trigger the retrofit code and the retrofit will either be just for that room or the entire house. Oh, and, and one of the triggers is a sale of the property or a change in occupancy. Okay. And this is, this is being considered. So British Columbia has adopted this framework and uh, you can read on on the website under the, I think it's Clean BC, they talk about their strategy for buildings. They want to roll this out by 2024 in British Columbia. And if you read the stuff coming out of the, the policy, the policy wonks, I like to call them. Like there's one called the Pembina Institute. And they show you just how much carbon is coming from all these old inefficient homes and how they should be retrofitted because of carbon. They want to remove gas. The BC building code even specifies after 2030 that there will be no more gas. And you say, well, that's great. I've got, I've got a gas furnace, so I'm good. Well, when your gas furnace breaks down, the BC government has mandated that all new appliances must be 100% or greater efficiency. So that means no more gas. So that means you can't buy a new furnace to replace your old furnace. 
So that's going to be a trigger, which will trigger a system change. So you'll have to install a heat pump. Then you'll probably have to install uh, EV charging infrastructure will be another one. They'll want you to do an inner guide um, efficiency test on your home before and after so that you have an inner guide rating on your house. And the inner guide rating will then kind of cajole everyone else to get it because it's going to add value to the home, supposedly. And then in the end, so what they're talking about is doing insulation, windows, electrical work, heat pumps, replacing everything in these homes. You're looking at anywhere from could be thirty to 50000 all the way up to $150,000 retrofit that will be mandatory depending on what trigger you've triggered in this code. So the government recognizes that people can't afford to do this. So what they've done is they've come up with something called property assessed clean energy. It's called PACE for short. And what that is, is they're, they're discussing it right now. It's, it's on the British Columbia website. They're going to have to change the law in British Columbia so that the government can take first place lien on your home. And what that means is normally you'd have sort of a triangle shape. So the, the first part of the triangle here up top, this would be your primary lender. So this would be the bank loans money against the value of your home. So if you default as a borrower, they get the first right to sell your home in foreclosure to pay off the loan. So they're first place lien. Then if you had a HELOC underneath that or some other loan attached to the property, then they would get second place. So whatever was left over after this person, they would get second place, third place, fourth place, so on. So for whatever reason, the government has decided that to loan you money through the PACE program, they need to change the law so that they can take first place lien on the home. So if you default, the government becomes the owner of the property. So what's not clear is why this has to happen. I haven't seen a convincing argument. Mm. And what they what they're saying is that you'll end up paying the loan through your property taxes so you, you're not going to be making a mortgage payment you're just going to pay more property taxes and as a part of that the cities the municipalities may end up taking on the debt right so if you lose your house it'll go to the debt of the the loaner and that'll be the the city will end up owning your home so like that, again, that just kind of stresses why we need to talk about this at the municipal level. But this is currently being discussed right now in British Columbia. And, um, you know, it, it when I hear people say things like it's, it's going to be 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And I think, well, what about all the people that own their houses? You know, forcing them to retrofit and then allowing the government to take first place lien seems like an easy way to remove home ownership from a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, to say that that's their plan, I can't say that that's their plan, but it does seem very strange that they're going to force everyone to do it. And they will, they want to do 2% of homes by 2050 because there's only so many places that the CO2 reductions can come from. And that's one of the biggest ones, just like mm -hmm. consumption. Mm. Hey. Oops. Is that an alarm or a phone? Oh, I had a phone, phone okay. right there. <laughs> um, let's just touch on the Great Awakening before we close here. I started watching it. It's a movie that's on your website, as I'm sure you know, um, The Great yeah. Awakening. 
what would you say is could be everybody's takeaway from that in like a positive note? I turned it off because I started getting depressed about it. Well, I I think that it explains like on on a positive note, it explains a lot of things that don't make sense. Hmm. So if if I was to summarize that movie, what they 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 kind of link. They've got G. G. Edward Griffin. He's a fellow uh, back in the in the black and white videos that they're interviewing uh, about communism and, and the slow march through the institutions and that sort of thing. Um, I don't necessarily believe that the world's being taken over by communists, but I think that the strategies that he's talking about in that video are being implemented. And once you see him describe that, I, I think it just makes a lot of things very clear. Mm. Um, so for, as, as a positive, when you're, you're kind of listing around and you you know, something's wrong and you don't know why the media says that, and why institutions are saying this, that movie explains a lot of it and it mm. makes sense. Um, and then as far as positives too, I, I think once you understand part of the problem and you can see it and you can label it you can identify it then you can start to think about solutions so until things are put in a way that makes sense you're just if you don't have the words to describe it and you don't understand then you're just flailing around um so that that, that's really what i'm trying to do is give people words to describe and show them what's happening so that they're accurately describing things and then they can find the solutions for them yeah yeah depressed might have been a strong word it just i find once you see what's going on in the world, you can't unsee it. And you also have to live your life in a beautiful mm-hmm. way and not get mm-hmm. consumed by it. Um, I will watch the rest, but I, I think it it does give words and context to what has ha- been happening for a really long time. And that knowledge and wisdom awareness is powerful because the more people that become aware that's when the big change can happen. And I mean, you know, when you think about communism, what isn't part of communism is God and that faith and trust that. So I I guess another positive would be, um, and and for myself, I think I had to be sitting across the table from evil and really Mm -hmm. see it and feel it and understand it to bring myself back to God. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm Christian. Uh, I, I try to go to church as much as I can. Admittedly, I've been very busy lately. Um, but it's, it's definitely brought me, brought me closer to God is to see evil. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if, if evil is not presented to you in your life and you, you can kind of make an excuse for everything all the time, uh, you're, you're less likely to, to take religion and, and faith seriously. So I, I think that would be a positive too, is that it's, it's going to bring more people to, to their faith and uh, hopefully help them find truth and, and peace in their lives. Hmm. I love that. Um, I'll just share that I also sat across from evil and that brought me back to church and Christianity. And that's been such a blessing during this time. And, and, and just to, there was that belief in me that evil didn't exist in the world 
And then when I saw it face to face, the truth that God exists as well came with that and that deep faith and trust with it. Um, okay. Anything on your heart that you want to add to the conversation before we close? Um, I, I would just say be, be positive. I, I'm so excited about uh, what I'm doing. You know, I, I wake up every day without knowing exactly what I'm going to do, but I, I would say that God has laid out a path for me and I'm following that path. And it's not always clear, but I trust that I'm going to do some good at some point and make a difference in the world. And that's all that I really wanted to do. And it's very scary to take the first step. Um, it's very scary to put yourself out there like I did, because I, I'm naturally, a lot of people say I'm a great speaker, but I'm actually the world's biggest introvert. I would rather stay inside and keep my opinions to myself. Uh, so it's, it's very challenging for me to do this, but I, I feel energized and excited to do it, even though inside sometimes I'm, I'm absolutely terrified. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if more people just take that first step forward and see it's not so bad, you know, dip your toes in the water, you'll get used to it. Um, and you can, you can take the next step and the next step, and it's not always clear where you're going to go, but you're going to go somewhere great. So just just be positive and, and take that first step beautiful it's very courageous and we appreciate that you're putting yourself out there like you are because it is definitely making a difference so thank you so much for your work and for this conversation it'll be in the show notes where everybody can check out your website check out your truck your save Canada. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can check me out. I'll, I'll plug it. You can check me out yeah. at uh, save, savecanada.com. And I'm on YouTube at Jeff in Canada. Okay. And I'm also on Twitter or X at Jeff in Canada. Okay. Not Instagram. I haven't got there yet. It's, it's okay. too complicated. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Just, well, just thank a simple you. guy. Just a simple guy. <laughs> All this tech stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Lisa. It's great talking with you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast. Please like, share, download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.